Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we are talking about the game My Life with Master. I suppose the big thing that's on our mind at the moment is that the next episode that goes out will be our 100th. Who the hell thought we'd get this far? I know, not it's I, amazing. Not, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, certainly not me. <laughs> yeah. So, I, all the way from the little shed to your bedroom. To my <laughs> yes, <laughs> what a long way we've come. <laughs> Who would have thought it? In space and quality. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so we've got episode 100 lined up for a fortnight's time. So, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to that one. Yep, our topic for that one is going to be an examination of the appeal of Lovecraft. In gaming, you know, what appeals to us about his work, his life, uh, and yeah, we hope it's going to be interesting. I understand someone's been following in footsteps of doing some field research, so... Well, I'm not sure it's in the interest of field research, but recently I had a trip to the Bodleian Library, one of the oldest libraries in Europe, situated in Oxford. We turned up early one morning and were given earpieces so that the uh, the guide could talk to us even when we were in the, the, the hushed uh, libraries in case there were people studying. It was uh, founded, I think, in 1602. And, and it's quite an eccentric looking structure as well. There's the round building outside, mm. but that's not actually the oldest part, I oh, believe. Okay. Right. Um, so the, the, part, the first part that we went to was the oldest section where... Um, there are books that were very they're not actually chained there anymore but originally they were chained in situ and also something that was mentioned quite a lot while we were there was harry potter because quite (laughs) a lot of the locations were used for uh, the filming of the 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 harry potter films in various places but i did learn something i didn't Mm. know about books that were chained so the way they're portrayed in most illustrations that I've seen and in Harry Potter and so on is that the chain is on the spine. Yeah. Now, this wasn't how they were. So the, if you visualise a book, the chain was attached to a, um, an attachment to the cover, but it would be on the side of the book where it opens opposite the spine. And huh. the reason for that is because the spine's were very, these books obviously were very, very precious. And the spines were the most important part of the book. Damage that and it falls apart. So the, the chain would be attached to the, the opening side of the book. But then what was interesting was the books would then be stored on the shelves spine inward. So when you mm-hmm. looked at the huh. shelf, you wouldn't be seeing the spines as we do now. You'd be seeing the you know, the opening edge of the book, which might be decorated or labelled or so on. And how were the chains attached? Were they, were, do they have a hole punched through or were so they'd they have a metal. On? I mean, the, the, the covers uh, were mostly, I think, of a, a thin wooden board, um, perhaps covered in leather or, or um, vellum or whatever. Um, and then the metal uh, attachment would be fixed to the, to the cover that way. But another interesting thing I thought in terms of gaming and, and um, you know, if you want the sort of realism in your historical gaming, was that you weren't allowed to take any sources of light, well, open flames, which were your only sources of light, into the library. So basically, if it was winter in England, you only had a few hours in which to study because you could not take any Ooh, sources of light wow. in there. That, that could add some real 
pressure, time pressure, uh, if you were playing a scenario set in the winter, yeah, you know, you, you've got a lot of research you need to do. You know, the the big horrible thing is happening tonight. You need to be prepared for it. Uh, and oh, bugger, is overcast. Yeah, <laughs> and clearly, with the value of these books, they were very tight on on lending them out. And there was some story I don't remember the specifics, but even like the the King of England wanted to, to take some of the books out, and there was there was issues with that. So you know, you couldn't pull rank. Um, they were very tight on this. That was probably the most interesting part and the part that felt most relevant to, to Call of Cthulhu. Um, and then obviously they've got, you know, vast areas of book storage um, down underground and there's tunnels going under the road. And then they've got um, warehouses sort of on the edge of, of the town and then, you know, as far down as um, either Swindon or Reading. Um, so, yeah, this is a, a massive place with a, a vast collection of books. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I've only ever seen the building from the outside, and yeah, um, you, you, you've made me want to kind of poke around it a bit more. Unfortunately, I did actually write some stuff about the Bodleian Library for the SOE Handbook some time back, and you know, had no first-hand experience of it, so I just had to rely on on reading little bits about it. And I wish I'd known half of what you just told me, oh, just well, so if, I could have fleshed it out a bit. If, more. if you're ever in Oxford, yeah, it's well worth booking on a tour um, of, of the of the Bodleian Library. I recommend it. Yeah, it's very good. I know that one of my favourite bookstores in the world is on the uh, the other side of the road, opposite the big round building. It's uh, Blackwell's. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. With a vast underground um, amphitheatre-like room full of uh, full of books on different subjects. Oh, there are a lot of good bookshops in Oxford. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, definitely. And then, Sam Scott, you've been on uh, appearing on other shows. Yes, yeah. Uh, Keeper Murph of the Miskatonic University podcast did a, a short interview segment with me a couple of weeks back, uh, which went out on a special episode of the, the MU podcast last week. Uh, so this is just one where they were doing a catch-up, interviewing various people just to find out about works in progress and works that have been released recently. Uh, so I chatted with him a bit about The Two-Headed Serpent, uh, about the upcoming Cthulhu Dark Kickstarter, and, of course, about this podcast and The Blasphemous Tome. Before we get into the main topic, it is time once again for the Lovecraftian word of the week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, our word of the week is formulae. It's a noun. One. Established forms or sets of words as used in religious ceremonies, legal proceedings, etc. Two, from mathematics. General relationships, principles or rules stated, often as equations, in the form of symbols. Three, from chemistry. Representations of molecules, radicals, ions, etc. Expressed in the symbols of the atoms of their constituent elements. Four, methods, patterns or rules for doing or producing something. Now, I deliberately chose the plural version of this. Just to make it hard for me to pronounce? Yeah, well, that, that yeah. was just an added bonus. <laughs> but it's because of the way Lovecraft used it. I mean, he used the word formula quite a lot, but he used the word formulae more. It ties in very much with almost that first definition, the slightly ecclesiastical one, but also, you know, to some extent, with the mathematical one. And I think this sort of almost blurring of the two is something that is very strongly related to Lovecraft, the mythos, mythos magic. Ah, oh, that's an interesting observation. Yes, very good. 
<laughs> Sorry, <laughs> <just sending>, I'm <laughs> condescending. <laughs> <laughs> it hadn't occurred to me. Yeah. So apparently, Lovecraft used this word 31 times in his fiction. Yeah, and and most of the time it crops up in either the case of Charles Dexter Ward, where it's all over the place. Quite a lot uh, of chemistry references there, though, yes. right? As the, the essential salts and all that. Yeah, so it's, it's a mixture of the two meanings there, and uh, it turns up a lot in Dreams of the Witch House again. You know, very much in sort of the scientific meaning there, but again with hints of the esoteric about it. Quite an alchemical kind of uh, word. Well, actually, in Dreams of the Witch House, it tends to be more mathematical, but as Dreams of the Witch House shows us, just because it's mathematical doesn't mean and it's not esoteric. Now let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word formulae in his writings. From the case of Charles Dexter Ward, there were chantings and repetitions and thunderous declamations and uncanny rhythms. And although these sounds were always in Ward's own voice, there was something in the quality of that voice and in the accents of the formulae it pronounced, which could not but chill the blood of every hearer and from the dreams in the witch house. But all these precautions came late in the day, so that Gilman had some terrible hints from the dreaded Necronomicon of Abdul al-Hazred, the fragmentary book of Ibon, and the suppressed unarsprach Lichtenkulten of von Junst to correlate with his abstract formulae on the properties of space and the linkage of dimensions known and unknown. And from the haunter of the dark. They were the black... Forbidden things which most sane people have never even heard of, or have heard of only in furtive, timorous whispers, the banned and dreaded repositories of equivocal secrets and immemorial formulae which have trickled down the stream of time from the days of man's youth and the dim, fabulous days before man was. And now, on to our main topic, My Life with Master. Yeah, so My Life with Master came out 2003, so it's quite an old game now. Um, But it's a standalone game. I imagine it's a game that quite a lot of people may not have heard of now. It was quite early on in the days of the kind of indie RPG movement, I think it came about. Yeah, it it was one of the first... um, One of that first barrage of games that came out of the Forge. This movement of of self-publishing of indie RPGs, these creator-owned self-published games that suddenly flooded the RPG market uh, back in the early 2000s to mid-2000s. And really, I'd argue, changed the face of role-playing. Not just in terms of uh, you know, this whole new model of, of uh, creator-owned stuff and self-publishing, which we still see an awful lot now in these days of Kickstarters. Also because these were people who were fundamentally changing or trying to change, certainly looking at and deconstructing what a role-playing game was and trying to find new ways of role-playing. Written by Paul Sager um, and self-published under the name Half Meme Press. Uh, in 2003, it won the 2004 Diana Jones Award, uh, the 2003 Out of the Box Award for Best... What, how do you pronounce this, Scott? Sui, <coughs> Sorry. Sui Generis. Well, I'm glad you stumbled over that as well. And the, and the 2003 Indie Role-Playing Game of the Year. There's a few games which have used this model since then, that there's no one definitive set, meth- uh, set setting for the game. There's... An overarching framework that describes the relationships that the characters have to the master and the relationships they have to themselves. But it doesn't have to be 
oh, it doesn't have to be set anywhere at any one particular time. It can be set anywhere in any context, which is one of the things I like about it. You've talked about the master there, Matt. It's, it's like the GM is the master and the players are his minions. Yes. <laughs> Don't fucking Before minions were even a thing, right? Um, we're not talking little green fellas here. No, because no, they're yellow. They're yellow. I meant to say yellow. We're not talking little <laughs> yellow fellas here. Typically, it's this kind of figure in a in a gothic castle up on a mountain, and you know the the minions are kind of like Igors from yeah. Frankenstein. Yeah, I mean, this is very gothic. This is very Hammer horror. But at the same time, I, it, there's lots of black comedy laced through it, and and perhaps some serious psychological explanation exploration even that this is a a game that's really about dysfunctional relationships and about trying to believe in yourself and overcome your self-loathing enough to actually function as a normal human being. So it's a really happy, fun-filled exploit. Well, except it can be a lot of fun. It can be really quite funny. I think the best explanation of it I've come across is the tagline in the game, in the opening page, where it describes it as a role-playing game of villainy, self-loathing and unrequited love. And what more do you want in a game? See previous statement. Fun, happy. Let's take a look at how My Life with Master works. There's not much of a character sheet for it, I must admit. It is quite a basic sheet in comparison to a lot of other games. Oh, yeah. I, there's not much of a game there either in terms of size. I mean, this is a pamphlet physically. I mean, it's about 50 pages long, 60 pages. I mean, the layout of it, there's lots of white space. It's big text. I mean, you can read the whole thing cover to cover in you know, 30 minutes. It, it is not a big game. And it's a very visually attractive game as well. I mean, it's printed in black and white, but it's got some nice uh, evocative line art, which really sums up the setting nicely, or at least that default gothic horror setting. And uh, the, the the layout, the little uh, vignettes and so on around there, yeah, it's a very pretty book to look at. So how does one play the game? To start off with, there's a couple of attributes that have to be set. One is fear and one is reason. And we're kind of defining the... The, the game world here, aren't we? It's almost like world-burning, in a way. Very much so. But it's a mechanical thing as well as a... Um as well as a stylistic thing. What the, the, the value of fear represents is how much influence the master and his evil has over the setting. And reason is the influence of the normal people, the townsfolk that the characters will interact with. But as well as sort of setting the tone there, these have a marked mechanical effect on the way the game plays out, how easy conflicts will be, how long the game will run. So fear and reason are set as two single-digit numbers on a scale of about, what, three to six, something like that? Yeah, three to five, usually. Then we move on to creating the master. When we did it as a kind of a group uh, experience. Is that the intention, Scott? Yes, that's, that's exactly how the game is written. The, the players are supposed to work with the GM to come up with the setting and the master and uh, the town and elements like that. Coming up with the master in particular is a very important thing to do as a group because, you know, the GM is going to be playing the master as this really unpleasant influence in the lives of the minions. And, it, I mean, this can be, I'd say, quite a, an unpleasant game to actually play at times because 
you know, a, a good master will belittle you and and uh, say horrible things and dismiss everything you have to say, genuinely be quite abusive to the players. I think that having created a lot of that, it means that you're at least buying into it in the first yeah, place. Yeah, I think as player, you've kind of got to um, agree to buy into that. I can see another reason why, um, as well, having that group creation of the master as well that you have a certain amount of investiture in it that later on you suddenly realize oh shit i created this horrible bastard (laughs) yes yeah i mean as a minion however much you dislike the master certainly you are doing his bidding to some to some degree during the game oh absolutely yes given the way my dice rolls go yeah definitely But I, you do a number of things as part of this group creation. I mean, the first is creating the domain. So this is the environment in which it all happens. The default method, as Scott's mentioned, is a traditional hammer horror setting. Big castle silhouetted by lightning up on a crag-like cliff that overlooks this pitiful little village down in a valley. Yeah, that, that's kind of standard trope. You don't need to fill in much of the blanks there. I think maybe for our explanation, we should just stick with that model and then yeah. talk about variations later. So you mentioned this castle overlooks a village or a town, and this is an important part of it as well. And these are the ordinary people. This is where they live. And these are the people that the minions will be interacting with over time. These, these represent their connections to humanity. So when you're setting all this up and setting up the, the sort of innocence of the town and uh, you know, the master is looking at them as raw material or something to be shaped, but they're meant to be the humanity of the game. And the master has to have some motivation given to him. So in the game we played, we came up with the idea that the the master was a kind of scientific rationalist and the townspeople were very religious and he was trying to get rid of the church and its influence in town and impose the kind of modern scientific rationalism upon his townspeople by hook or by crook. Well, as I mentioned, as a group, you create the master. And there are certain guidelines that are given in the rulebook. Uh, it's, it's not quite a checklist and you don't necessarily do things in any particular order, but there are certain prompts to give you some idea as to what kind of master you're creating. Uh, the first one in there is, is this a brain or a beast? So that means, is it someone who is driven by sort of cold, calculating um, uh, designs, or are they more subject to animal instincts of hunger and violence and rage? You know, when you first said that, I was really hoping we were going to have a brain in a jar as a master. But, that no. could work extremely mm. well. Yeah, have a kind of pulp sci-fi game. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, very much so. The master then needs something from the villagers. So... What we had in our game, uh, well, we had a brain master, you know, to start off with. He was very intellectually driven. Um, you know, as Paul mentioned earlier, what he needed from the villagers was for them to become rational. The master, you know, as, as much as the minions are beholden to the master, the master in turn is beholden to someone else. These could be his scientific peers. They could be the people at the academy that he's trying to impress. They could be his family. It could be the woman he's trying to woo or the man he's trying to woo. It 
could just be anyone whose opinion he actually values. And as part of this network of dysfunctional relationships that drives this horrible situation, whoever it is, is pretty much going to be as dismissive of the master as the master is of everyone else, that he is never ever going to be able to please them. And this failure to please them is going to drive him to do more and more horrible things. And finally, you have the type of master... In each instance, the master wants something from the townsfolk. It's just how you classify that want and so what form it takes. You have a feeder. If I'm right, that's essentially he's he's basically using them as raw material, isn't he? That he's pretty much yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the sort of classic trope that they describe in the rules there is Count Dracula. Mm. Yeah, so he's constantly having having a nibble. Then you've got breeder, which is mm, a bit unsavoury. Yeah, well, I mean, the examples gain in the text there make it sound a bit less sexual than you know it, it might seem at first. So this is more on the lines of say, um, you know, Doctor Frankenstein, uh, who is trying to create life. Uh, you know, maybe it's someone trying to create a monkey life. Maybe it's, it's someone like Doctor Morrow who is you know uplifting animals. To life, to life, I'll bring them. The next one on the list is a collector. Not quite as bad as the uh, film by the same name I can think of, but someone who's <laughs> trying to um, almost establish a menagerie of sorts, perhaps. Yeah, yes. Uh, yeah, perhaps you know, he has, he, he's trying to create the perfect choir with which to woo the woman he loves, and he is trying to find all the children in town with the, the most beautiful voices and gather them there and keep them prisoner in, in his tower until they can sing the perfect aria. I think we're safe, given our uh, <laughs> given our exploits of singing. We'll, oh, we'll be fine. speak for yourself. Some of us sing like fucking angels, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to meet him. Um, <laughs> and the last one, the one that our master fit into, was a teacher. Again, with the Pink Floyd references of you behind the bike shed, stand still, <laughs> laddie. <laughs> So, yes, someone who wants to teach the town a lesson, change their behaviours, impose some sort of moral code on them. Just burn the church down. Oh, that's that's a given. (laughs) Then we come on to creating the player characters, the minions. So each player gets given a character sheet. Now, those used to play in role-playing games, as we all are, we're used to a character sheet with quite a lot of boxes for numbers or, you know, where you write down characteristics or attributes and character traits. This is a very minimal sheet. There's the two boxes for fear and reason, which we discussed already. So they've already got a digit set for each. And then there are two other numeric attributes that we have to decide values for. The first is, and I love these two names, self-loathing and weariness. And yeah. those are your attributes. I mean, th- those names tell you so much about the kind of game you're, you're playing here. <laughs> Where's my strength? Where's Dex? Where's my spot hidden skill? Where, where are all those things? <laughs> it's all gone. You just have weariness. <laughs> and, yeah, these, these two very interesting things in the game. So your self-loathing is, well, exactly what it says. It's how much the character hates him or herself. This is what allows you to perform acts of villainy. Uh, This is what gives you strength, allows you to be a better monster. But at the same time, it makes it harder for you to break free of the master's malign influence because you hate yourself so much. And weariness? 
Weariness is how beaten down you are by the whole process. I mean, this can be, you know, emotional damage. This can be physical damage. You, know, you gain it by losing conflicts. You can choose to start, you know, with weariness. And weariness makes it more likely that you will fail conflicts. Now, why you'd want to choose a stat that would make it more difficult for you to succeed in conflicts isn't immediately obvious to most players. But when you start to realise the kinds of things you're rolling dice for in this, sometimes you really don't want to succeed in the things you're doing. I just put all my points in weariness because I knew I was going to fuck up on all the dice rolls anyway, so I thought I might as well mechanically do it. Now, the player only has, I think, three points to divide between those two characteristics. But the characteristics will shift during play. As you win and lose conflicts, those values will go up. Now, I said those are the only two numeric stats. There are a couple of other attributes below those. One is titled more than human, and the other is less than human. And these are two character traits which apply to the minion. They are things that uh, he or she can do under certain circumstances. And usually, if you can bring these, certainly the more than human, into play, uh, then it means you just automatically succeed at what you're doing in that scene. You, you, you don't roll dice for it, it just happens. And these are quite often almost supernatural abilities, aren't they? Or mm. kind of gothic horror or fairy tale aspects. Yeah, so, I, well, you know, I think the... fairy tale is, is quite a good way of putting it. A lot of them really have fairy tale rings to them. So, for example, perhaps you can talk to animals, but not while anybody's watching. Yes, or you can sing like an angel, but not when the sun is shining. And to give an example of less than human, which pretty much operates on the same circumstances, a drawback, but again with a limited set of criteria, or limiting criteria, is that you could speak normally, but only when you're in a graveyard. The idea of uh, the, the, the less than human is the flip side of that. These are things that will automatically make you fail what you're trying to do unless you know, those, those extenuating circumstances are in place. So there are a couple of things that add colour to the game and kind of embellish your uh, quite simple minion character. Then you have connections, which are people or NPCs in the game. And these you attribute a love rating to right that's right you start off in a default game with absolutely no connections when we played because we were playing a a much more accelerated game we were trying to finish it in a couple of sessions then we actually started out with some connections and ah, I see. The characters. right but um in a normal game of my life with master you start with none and these are things that you build up during play so really that's your character done You've defined two digits for self-loathing and weariness. And you said what makes them more than human and what makes them less than human. Well, no, you, you've missed out the one bit that players traditionally stumble over in every role-playing game. Coming up with a name. And curiously, no place for a name on the character sheet. I think that just underlines the fact that you are, you know, just a minion. Yeah. Yes. You're, 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 you're less than nothing. But at least you have a wonderful picture frame that surrounds the, uh, the rest of the sheet. So once you've gone through all this setup, you jump into playing the game. Now, depending on what you've set those attributes of fear and reason to in the first place, and whether you do or don't start with any points of love on the character sheets, you could potentially play through this in a single session. More often, I mean, if you go for the recommended values in the game, you're looking more usually at playing over four or five sessions. 
Yeah, I felt that our playing it in two, I mean, they were two quite short sessions. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was the length of one kind of regular session, I suppose. It felt a little rushed, I yeah. would say. I mean, it gave a feel for the game, um, but I think it does rely on, because we talked about those connections and trying to um, establish a, a relationship with characters in the town. I think one builds that up more over a longer game of, of uh you know, four or five sessions. Yeah, I think you feel more invested uh, if these are things that are built up organically and gradually over time. One of the weird things about these these slightly more compressed games is that because you're starting out with these points of love and because fear is relatively low compared to reason and stuff like that, your characters are much more likely to have happy outcomes. You get to taste the hatred for the master all the same, though. Yes, yeah, that that is an important part of it. Now I mean, we'll, we'll expand upon this a little bit as we go on. An important part of this game is the fact that the GM is supposed to portray the master as utterly hateful. Um, you are supposed to really, as I said before, you know, take every opportunity to belittle and harass and harangue uh, the minions and and you know grind their spirits down. And the idea of this is that you're ultimately playing towards an end game where you know, one or more of the minions will rise up and kill the master. If you're playing this over a number of sessions and you have this constant belittlement and, and niggling and nitpicking, then I think it becomes a much more genuine, emotional, visceral reaction that you hate this character and want them to die. Well, I think that becomes stronger as well because one builds up the relationships with individuals in the town. And albeit this is, I think we have to reiterate something I'd forgotten when I played it this time, is it's a kind of black comedy game. So there mm. is quite a lot of humour in it. But you do build these relationships with people, with NPCs, and it's kind of humorous, but you build a sense of affection for them. Then the master tells you to do something quite horrible to them, which is hard to reconcile with comedy. Hmm. And, you know, you either end up carrying that out because the rules kind of compel you to, to some degree, or they, they, well, let's just talk about that. So the master, yeah. in, in the first scene, for example, Scott as the GM playing the master might be my scene. We kind of go round player by player and the, the master gives the minion a task to carry out yeah and this will be a task in pursuit of what we've already decided the master's needs are now one thing that i learned you know in, in, after running a few sessions of this is that it really pays to start low-key here so you you probably want some you know fairly petty act of villainy here you know maybe a theft or something like that something that the master wants from from someone in the town but you know he expects the minion to go and do that that won't really permanently hurt or disfigure or kill anyone and it allows the minions to kind of buy into it then as well because mm. if you just say you know go and burn all the the hymn books or go and bring me all the hymn books or something as a minion i might sort of think well i don't really see why i should do that but the master wants me to okay i'll do it whereas if you say to go and murder somebody or something like that i'll be like well no you know that's that's i can't be doing that so incrementally i can kind of buy into what the master's doing because the things don't seem too harsh now the master sets me the player a goal and then it's over to the player isn't it you know what are you going to do and and as player i can decide and there's a mechanical support for this i can decide i'm going to fight against the master's wishes 
or I can decide, OK, I'm just going to do what the master says. What this is about, fundamentally, the whole game is about building up these connections, building up these points of love, which anchor the the minion into the town a bit, makes, makes them care about the townspeople, and makes them in turn more human. And as they regain this humanity, which they've lost through the process of being a minion to a, a horrible, horrible master then this gives them the strength to rise up and fight against the monster they become. And more dice. So there's an option there to, to rebel against what the master's asked me to do. Now, if I win that role... You don't have to do it. Right, but if I lose it, and that's likely, certainly at the start, that I will, you know, that I will feel compelled to do it, then I have to make at least one role in pursuit of the master's command. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about having lots of points of weariness, which is sometimes you really want to fill these roles. So let's say that you're at a later point in the game and that you have built up a number of points of connection in, you know, the, say you've befriended this old widowed woman who lives in a little shack outside town and you've been going down and you've been bringing her meals and making sure that she's kept warm enough and chopping firewood for her. And, you know, she's still is wary of you because, you know, she knows who you work for and she knows the kinds of things you do. But you've, you've shown her nothing but kindness. And let's say that, you know, you, you get to the, you know, towards the late stage of the game and, you know, she's got some valuable artefact or some, you know, say some scientific curiosity that the master decides, you know, he needs. That's her treasure possession. And the master says, oh, yeah, go down and whatever it takes, take it off her. You know, I, d I don't care if she dies in the process. I don't care if you have to burn her shack down. You know, just get me that MacGuffin. So it can also be quite a petty motivation behind them as well. Like in the in the game we played, your master uh, sent us to go and burn a church just so that it would be a nice spectacle for a dinner. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> in situations like that, you probably do want to fail that role. So, you know, you've made your role to try to resist what the master is telling you to do. You fail that. So you go down and you're trying to perform this act of villainy and, and you're, you're, you're fighting against it. And the one thing that might save you in this is just that feeling of, oh, God, this again. I can't do this anymore. So we're having to do that thing the master told us, and we're kind of hoping we'll fail the role. We'll fail to burn the church down if I fail this role, because I've had to make some effort to do it. And then if I succeed in the role to do that thing, almost against my best wishes, I have actually, you know, it has actually been successful, and I have ended up burning the church down. That, that token effort that I kind of made, because it tends to be that, that the, the player character playing the minion, if it's something they don't want to do, they're compelled to make a, an effort, so they make some sort of you know, very kind of minor effort towards doing that thing. But then if they succeed in the role, that, that, the, the GM is at liberty to kind of escalate that effort and you know, allow it to you know, fulfil the master's wishes. Well, I mean, you say that, but not all players approach this the same way. I mean, that first game we played at the club years ago, Paul, there was one of the players there who really embraced the villainous nature of his, his minion. As the game went on, he made no attempts to create connections with, with anyone. He garnered no points of love. And every time the master told him to do something you know, really horrible, he'd just say, oh, yeah, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll go off and do that. Made no attempt to resist it and just went off and did it. And do you think that's a problem? No, for the game. No, no, and and we'll get back to this when we talk about the end games because the end games do a great job of reflecting what these decisions do and what they mean for your character's fate. Mm. 
Master says jump. Mark says how high. <laughs> Pretty much. Now, one thing that we've only hinted at so far is that we've said that there are dice rolls. These aren't usual dice. These are these are a type of dice that don't get much love in games. So I think second only to a D12. You get to use a whole bucket full of caltrops. This yep. has loads of D4s. Yeah, I mean, you say they don't get much love. They don't get much love here, to be honest. Because <laughs> you end up with a handful of them as a player based on a balance of, of stats. You know, I'll roll some D4s and the GM will roll some D4s and compare the result. But a result of four on the die counts as a zero most of the time, right? So yeah. it's like, oh, uh, oh no, that's not good. So you're adding up those. And then there are a few other bonus dice that you can earn through your characters actions right yeah through role playing so the idea is that when you come into a conflict um either the master well it doesn't have to be the master either you know the npc but usually the master or the minion can angle for certain bonus dice and these bonus dice are you can get a bonus d4 by invoking intimacy now this generally means you know Something fairly insincere, so it can be just you know petty flattery or stroking someone's hair or just touching their bicep, uh, and yeah, pretending to you know have this this little contact. In which case, you get an additional d4, but this is a special d4 in that if you roll a four on it, it is actually a four. Then you have desperation. Desperation is exactly what it sounds like. So it's sort of, yeah, no, master, don't send me out across the marsh. Last time I went there, yeah, I almost got sucked down in the quicksand. And when I got to the other end, they beat me with sticks and they threatened to set fire to me. No, no, master, don't make me do this. I'll do anything instead of that. Or rather, Paul just jumps out of a window. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so could it be desperate action or just desperate kind of role-playing your character it's it's normally more of the former, but you know, okay. you know, you're advised in the rules to be generous with things. If only we'd realised these things, Matt. Yeah, no shit. Hang on a minute. You're supposed to be generous. You're never fucking generous with dice. <laughs> I, I said that was the advice in the rules. I didn't say that they followed And the last one, perhaps the one we struggle with the most, the D8 for sincerity. I got it once. You did. How yeah. did you get it, Matt? I can't remember. <laughs> by, by, by being sincere yes. that was it yeah we talked you know a moment ago about how you can have insincere intimacy so this is the idea that you're, you're doing something for sincere motivations or bringing your know, genuine care about someone else's well-being into this and um you know going out on a limb here now the desperation and particularly the intimacy die are available to the master as well the master can never be sincere. Only Binions can. I like it, the fact that actually real sincerity gives you a bigger dice than fake sincerity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only the world worked like that. <laughs> yeah. <Yes. laughs> now, there are two types of action that the character can take out when it comes to villainy, isn't there? There's villainy with violence and villainy without violence. They have slightly different effects um, when it comes to the dice. And when you pass or fail these roles they can shift some of your attributes on your character yeah, sheet right you you, are, you tend to either get self-loathing or weariness out of it if you succeed uh then you know your self-loathing goes up because you, you you hate yourself for doing this act of villainy all the more and if you fail a violent conflict you get a point of weariness out of it and once you've you know you've made, at least made an attempt at villainy you get a little bit of respite, don't you? You can go off and do something else as a player. And often this involves making 
an overture, as it's called, to somebody in town. And if you're successful in that, then you can raise that relationship with a point of love. So what? we were talking about like the you know the the widow in the in the shack yes. that you've been taking gifts to. You can make an overture to them. So this is like a little role playing scene here. Um, and by raising your points of love, um, then it, it helps you in the end game. But, I mean, even if you fail in the overture, you still get a point of love because the important thing is you're trying to make that connection. So let's say you go out um, you know, to, to this, this widow in the shack uh, and you go out and you, you realise that you know, she hasn't eaten uh, properly for some time. Uh, and you've gone out and you've killed a rabbit for her and you take her this, this rabbit. You make your overture and you, you roll the dice. If you succeed in that, yeah, you get a point of love. If you fail, like I say, you still get that point of love, but you know she reacts badly to it. So the, the, the success might mean you go along and you know she looks at the rabbit and oh, oh yeah oh thank you that's just the thing my stew needs. Yeah, I've got I, I'll, I'll put it in the pot right now. Why, why don't you come and join me? There, there's enough for two. And, you know, if you fail, it could be, my God, why are you bringing that dead thing in the house? Or, oh, that's the rabbit I used to go out and feed in the garden. Why have you killed it, you monster? <laughs> why have you killed my pet rabbit? <laughs> yeah. so, I think I might have um, failed to record those points correctly then. Oh, right. So yeah, me a, too. Yeah, you so, as well. So this is a game that we've talked about. The mechanics on the sheet, there are very few numbers. Hmm. So it, it's deceptive because it seems like it's very simple. But actually... In play, a lot of it is relies on remembering a lot of if this is greater than that, and if yeah. you do this, you get that. And it's not always quite intuitive as to where that should go. Yeah, I mean, whenever I GM this, I always have a cheat sheet printed out that reminds me what all these these different roles, which are known as formulae in the game, hence the word of the week. Yeah. Um, so it reminds me what all the formulae are and what all the trigger conditions are uh, for different things. We'll come to some of those in a moment. That said, I, I still screw this up the whole time while running it. What I find is it's very easy to get caught up in the narration sometimes and the, you know, the, the in-game consequences of something to the extent where you, know, you then skip on to the next scene and then about two scenes later it's, oh, fuck, yeah, the weariness should have gone up by one there. You know, I'm not sure which one I find more pleasing. The one that formulae linked into the word of the week or Scott said word of the week with a vaguely happy tone. <laughs> Uh, as Paul said, there's lots of comparisons here. You're looking at one number comparing against another, and if it meets a set particular criteria, then you end up doing X, Y, or Z options. Um, there are some special scenes where, if again, certain of these criteria are met, then certain things happen. One of them has the wonderful title of The Horror Revealed, which is where your minion goes out and does something particularly horrendous and then wanders away quite satisfied with himself or herself. And then when it comes back round to you to have your turn again, because it is quite a turn-based game, you're moving mm. from one player to another player to another player, and each one has yeah. their own spotlight scene. Uh, when it comes back round to you again, you're not looking at you, you're not looking at the master, you're looking at the impact that your actions have had on the NPCs. It's like a off-camera moment when the camera pans to one side and shows you what's happening off in the background rather than looking at the main protagonists. It's almost like that for that moment, you're a GM. You're kind of narrating something as a GM would narrate it almost. Mm. Yeah. And you're saying some of the, yeah, kind of unpleasant things, the horror revealed, been brought about by your 
character's actions. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely by the actions of the minions. That so, poor old woman is cradling the body of her dead rabbit while she watches her house burn. Yeah, that kind of thing. Or who would have known that burning the orphanage down would have would have had such a bad effect on all those orphans? Yeah, you know, well, they got a warm fire. <laughs> Warm the hands. It's been like sub-zero out there in the, sea, um, the last couple of evenings. They should yes. be grateful for a fire. Yes. So the horror revealed would come about when the fire goes out. Oh. One thing we have not exactly glossed over, but there are no hit points in this game. So you have weariness, which is your how much you've been beaten down, how much you can and can't go on, and all the angst and all, and all that stuff that goes along with it. But when you fail certain actions... You can be captured, and you you are put at risk. Your character never actually is in danger of dying until the the very end of the game. But these scenes where you're captured, hmm, yeah, you play through as if there's some degree of risk, and and you're certainly faced with, say, the townsfolk or possibly even the outsiders who have um you know, have got you at their mercy and and want to show you, you know, exactly how displeased they are with what you and the Master have been doing to their lives. But at the end of the scene, it's a given that you will get away or be released. Eventually, it comes to the end game, the bit that the players have been looking forward to from session one. Desperately where, hoping that the dice will actually let them get there. As <laughs> <yeah. well. laughs> Whereby the number of points of love that a player character has earned are now greater than the rating of fear and their weariness added together. So, yeah, it's this thing of, of balancing these numbers and suddenly you look at your sheet and realise that, oh, that condition is now true. So you tell the GM and this this precipitates an end game where the player can go against the master, Scott? Well, it, it, only, it only precipitates the end game if that's true and if you successfully roll to resist an order from the master. Right, so you role-play the scene where you go to the master and he gives you a mission, perhaps, yes. and then, then you rebel against him. But he still could overcome you. Yes, that's right. And you know, that could then mean that you go off, do another act of villainy, get beaten down, get another point of weariness, and then you're set back before you, know, ah, you actually get to do this. Right, OK. So it needs to yes. be both of those two factors together. Right. But it's kind of nice that the game's got that built-in kind of burnout, really. Yes. It's not going to go on forever because it's going to reach a point where the scales tip uh, and they may kind of swing a little bit, but they, they eventually kind of tip in the weight of the, the players and the master is thus somehow overthrown, usually, well, killed, right? Yes. Although, given our Scott rolls, that, that's, <laughs> that bloody swing takes a long time to yeah. come down in our favour. <laughs> and then for each player... There's some kind of epilogue. Yeah. Before we get on to the epilogue, let's just talk a little bit about killing the master because this is the you know the build up. This is what the game's all about, getting to this stage. So it's not just a usually a single role. So you get to the stage where you know a minion has resisted the master's order and is is strong enough, has enough love and enough belief in themselves and enough connection in humanity to say no, no, you know I am a person. I am better than this. I am not doing what you say. And um, at that point. You cut away from that player and then go around as GM and then frame scenes where the other minions are suddenly in life or death situations. Maybe the townsfolk have risen up against them. Maybe an NPC that they slighted or hurt before has suddenly got them on the back foot. And you, you go around and you play as many rounds of this as it takes until the player then succeeds in a violence role to actually kill the master. 
it's not guaranteed that they'll do that, and they could end up having to bring in lots of desperation or, uh, you know, even find some way to bring in sincerity in order to do it. And, uh, you know, during that time, the other player characters are in trouble, uh, and, you know, they may be earning more points of weariness as the master beats them down. So, yeah, it can be it can be a drawn-out process. It can be a very tense process. Mm. When we played it the other day, <laughs> yeah, Lucy just <laughs> killed the master in one round. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it all goes like that until Lucy gets the dice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we have the individual epilogues for each player and their minion character. And at the bottom of the player's character sheet, there are, again, various attributes which one compares to see what kind of outcome is going to be for that minion so this includes such things as the minion flees and wanders off never to be seen again or perhaps the, the minion meets a tragic end perhaps taking their own life of course at the other end of the scale and this is the minion emerges from the ashes as a force of fear in their own right basically they've been they've gone on being a bad person they will continue to be a bad person and become the new master yeah, this is what happens if the minion manages to avoid earning any points of love throughout the whole game. They mm. become the new master. Because you cannot be an effective master if anyone loves you, yeah. or if you love anyone else. So that's if you've made no overtures at all, then? Or, or if you've made overtures to people and they've been killed during play. Ah, because right, if, yes. If, if an NPC with whom you have points of love dies during the game, you lose all the points of love. Right, I mean, the the mini mark effect here is also that they they still want to carry on being a bad person, but they don't want to step up into the new pay into the next pay grade. So they go and run off and find a new master. But the one that all of our characters fit into when we played, we all had a happy ending. We integrated with the townsfolk. Yeah. Huzzah! <laughs> Woo! I'm not sure how happy it was, but yeah, we did. I think that yeah, was the problem of it yeah. being quite a short game as well, though, and the balance yeah. of the numbers that that kind of uh, pushed us towards. We didn't play them out over a long period of time, but the descriptions that you gave for the characters, you know, represented a long period of time. The years of, you know, they, the townsfolk slowly coming to trust you, uh, you know, beginning to see you as one of their own and slowly forgetting all the horrible things that you had done to them in the name of the master. Yeah, that you really were a monster. Or in some cases, they still remain a monster, just locked up in the bell tower, staring at the congregation after having rebuilt the church. <laughs> and now let's have a quick look at our own personal experiences of playing My Life with Master. Well, this is a game that I've played twice now. One just recently as a kind of two-shot um, session game. Uh, but a few years ago at the Milton Keynes Role Playing Game Club, Scott, you ran it over, what, an eight-week block? No, um... We we had these eight week blocks at the camp uh, at the club, uh, where we tend to play short campaigns. But uh, if I remember correctly, I actually split uh, that block up into two games, and I think we played My Life with Master for the first four and the Mountain Witch for the second four. Ah, right, yes, yes, yeah. So that was over a, maybe a four week block there, and that 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 allowed the game to breathe more and to get more into the relationships with the characters and so on. So I would say this is a game that kind of benefits from that but you've run it as a one shot sometimes at conventions yeah i've run it a few times at conventions and i've run it as a one shot at the club and um yeah i i find it less satisfying to do that 
Yeah, it, it, it's still fun. I, and mm. you, you can have a good fun game of this in four hours. You know, the caveat I'd offer is that you're less likely to see the breadth of epilogues at the end. That, as we mentioned earlier, just the way the numbers you know, are set up in the first place, you are far less likely to get unhappy endings. And I would imagine for a one-shot particularly, you wouldn't want more than four players. Now, this game demands the GM be a kind of a cruel, villainous character. And, you know, you've said this is a difficult game to, to run, Scott. And, you know, I, I can see that that's a, quite a challenge for you, isn't it? <laughs> well, he says it's a difficult game to run mechanically, but I think the rest of it comes too easy for it him. It really that's does, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, I, I do feel vaguely alarmed at how easy I find it to play the master. Yeah. To, to, to find the most horrible things possible to say to people and and just treat them like shit for you know, a few if, hours. If ever, um, you know, if ever you stand for election, Scott, as, as balanced and as sensible and moral a person as you are, I'm not sure I'm going to vote for you after playing this game. <laughs> I was going to say, you did used to work in management, didn't you? Oh, yes. <laughs> but on a serious point, I mean, you do say it's a, a tricky game to run and I find that kind of curious because from the player-facing end of it, it looks like quite a simple game. Of At the start of the game, there's only four numbers on the sheet. Um, and it's just about these balance of attributes. Yeah, I think one of the things that makes it difficult is the fact that it's not a game you tend to run over a long period of time. I mean, yes, you mm. might be running it for four uh, sessions. You might be running the occasional one-shot. But it's not like a long campaign where everyone you know comes to know the mechanics intimately. As a result, it's usually down to you as the GM to remember all these things. And by the time you're, you know, keeping track of all the different NPCs, particularly when the players are bringing new ones in, trying to think of new horrible things that the master might demand, and generally keeping track of all the moving parts. When you come around to narrating the outcomes of scenes, it's quite quite easy to forget some of the mechanical consequences of them and just skip past them. I don't think in... You know, the, the half dozen games of this I've run, I have ever, ever remembered to, to trigger the horror revealed. Really? Because, I mean, that's quite a, a, a good scene, I yeah. think that could be. But, yeah, I can totally see. I think, for me, the problem lies in the fact that, well, it's perhaps twofold. One is that when I go to do something as a player, yeah, in Call of Cthulhu, I'm breaking down a door... I can remember, oh, that's a strength roll. And yeah, the GM will say, oh, yeah, that's a strength roll. If I'm firing a gun, then I'm, you know, I'm looking at my firearm skill. They're kind of intuitive things that I can learn quite easily. Whereas when I've got to make a, a villainy roll or, a, you know, something like that, you know, I'm like, oh, what is it? it you know, it's self-loathing minus reason. They're, they're kind of abstract terms that don't, uh, you know, I just pulled those two out of the air. I'm not sure yeah. it is those two things, but they're, they're abstract terms which don't, become an intuitive thing for me yeah I, the weird thing is that if you sit down and look at the formula in this game most of them do actually make sense from that point of view they're not arbitrary you know they, they really do reflect the sort of interchange between these these mechanical elements i can see that makes sense but it takes quite a lot of pondering to, oh, yes. to really kind of get to grips with all those terms and as a player who's just sitting down to play it without having really immersed oneself in in the rules those things aren't very immediate. You also have to be fairly adept, admittedly it's only basic maths, but still adept at the addition that you need to do with all the numbers on the sheet and then be able to quickly realise which of these criteria does this fall into? Because yes. you might not immediately um, suddenly, you might not immediately realise that one of those conditions has been met. And that's the point, I think. You've got to look at the numbers, compare them, 
and then think, oh, that's triggered. Because it's not that the narrative is going in a certain way and the narrative kind of triggers the next thing. Like I said, with me breaking down a door in Call of Cthulhu, the narrative is kind of driven towards a role to see if I break down the door. That's just common, well, kind of common sense you know, in, 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 within that rule set. Whereas within this, it's like, like you said, with the horror revealed, it, you've never done it because there's no kind of narrative build-up to it that kind of triggers it. There's a mechanical comparing two numbers on the sheet, but unless you think to compare those two numbers on the sheet, you're not going to think of it. Mm, absolutely. Another thing about this game that I'd come back to is the tone of it. So it's a it's a weird combination because in Call of Cthulhu, we've talked about this, how horror and comedy kind of go in hand in hand, how sometimes we want to, you know, kind of talk with our group and keep the the, the comedy more out of it and go for a more gritty feel and so on. But in this, it's... I haven't read the rule book in full, Scott, but you, you said it is aiming to be sort of comedic or black comedy. Yes. Oh, very yeah. much so. So you've got this this black comedy, but you've kind of got this uncomfortable horror aspect as mm. well. Now, when we played it at the club, as at the Milton Keynes Club, as we've talked about, one of the players at the end of the session stood up and said, thanks very much, but this isn't the game for me. It's too horrific. Yeah, and part of that was my fault, because, as, as I said earlier... Why am I not surprised? <laughs> well, actually, no, only part. Why Why are you not surprised, Matt? Can I enlighten you? Go on. Okay, so Scott's running this game, first session we've played, none of us really know it. Scott's the master, pretty unpleasant. We've kind of, you know, we've done all the, the character gen. I'm the first person to get a go. Scott's first command to me? Go down to the village... And you know that that nurse, me? Oh yeah, the one I'm friends with. Yes, that's the one. The one that helps us. You know, works in the hospital in town. Yes, yes, for all the you know the orphan children. Bring me her legs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they weren't prosthetic legs. No. Now I did contrive to kind of foil the master's wishes by bringing. You know, I thought this was a stroke of genius. Bought the whole nurse. Because her legs, you know, that's her <laughs> legs. Still there, yeah. Just yeah. got the rest of her attached. But the master wasn't happy. He never is. He's never happy. <laughs> he just can't please him. Yeah. But, but as I said before, I realised that I made some very grave mistakes running that. That was the first game of my life with the master I'd ever run. And yeah, you, you definitely need to start off small with petty acts of villainy and build up. That, the kinds of things I was throwing in the first scene were the kinds of things that I should have been throwing in the last scene. So mm. start small fingers maybe, maybe yeah. <laughs> yeah. but i mean it was a good game scott i mean I, I enjoyed it but i think it's interesting to note that one of the players dropped out because it was so horrific now i don't recall that happening in call of cthulhu or other games but i guess people know that they're signing up for a horror game in those yeah but if this game is too sold too heavily as a comedy game then you know it's interesting that whilst it's black comedy it's also can be so horrific and just because the kinds of acts of villainy you're you're being asked to do aren't necessarily grand your blood-soaked affairs, you can still be, depending on who the master is and the, the setting you've come up with, you might have games that are you know, completely bloodless, but the acts of villainy that you're doing might involve an awful lot of emotional trauma. You might be destroying people's lives in very 
psychologically unpleasant ways. In which case, you know, for certain people, that's going to be uh, probably even more upsetting if they're the ones perpetrating that than, you know, going out and cutting someone's legs off. You know, if what you're doing is taking someone's children away from them and leaving them a broken shell of a man or, or gaslighting someone and driving them insane then for certain people, you know, their characters being responsible for doing that to an NPC is going to be crossing a line. Mm. That, that pretty much fits how our game went, because I think there was only one violent villainy role in the whole game, and that was, that was you, Paul. Trying to uh, take, uh, take away Mrs. Yuri and yes. take her back up to the castle. There is one point I know that's been raised, which um, Scott's mentioned, is that sometimes the list of actions you have are quite restrictive, hmm. that you can only do X, Y, or Z, that if a player comes up with something that doesn't fit within those particular groupings, it can be a bit difficult there. Or if a player is adamant, no, I want to do this, but then the rules won't let me. That can feel a bit restrictive and a bit yeah. unfun. Well, I think particularly early on in the game, where you think, well, the master's asked me to do this. Well, kill I'm him! Not, not having that, yeah, kill him. Let's, let's group up and kill the master. Well, you can't. Yeah. I mean, that is something you've got to buy into absolutely when playing this game. And I remember talking to James Mullen about this years back. Uh, James runs an awful lot of my life with Master of Conventions. But he ran a few games at the club. He's, he's the only person uh, who's ever GM'd it for me. Uh, so I have actually played it as well. And you played a game? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, he does a fantastic job with my life with Master. He's much better at running it than I am. I remember him telling me about a game at a convention that he ran where, you know, in the first round, um, you know, I think even before being given a, a command, one of the players was, right, yeah, OK, I'm going to kill, kill the master. My character's got a crossbow. I'm going to wait in the bushes. Mm. And, you know, as soon as I see the master, I'm going to shoot him. And it's, um, no, 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 you, you can't do that. But that's what I want to do. Yeah, mm. but, but, you know, it's, it's a part of the premise of the game that you can't yeah but that's what i want to do and the the guy just you know hated the game from that moment onwards because he wasn't allowed to do what he wanted and i suppose if you're used to the complete freedom of action that you get in most role-playing games that's going to be quite jarring it probably helps you know to think of it almost in terms of a board game well i was just thinking yeah. that exactly you know i've rolled seven actually this time on monopoly i'm going to move backwards yeah. seven places so i can get back to marlborough street well, you can't. But You've I've got to go seven, forwards. But I've rolled seven. I should yeah. be able to move seven paces. Yeah, it's the same kind of yeah. logic, really. Yes, it's a role-playing game, but you're bringing expectations to it that it's like all role-playing games. And it's not. Each role-playing game can be a unique thing. Yeah. There is a long and rich history in the indie RPG community of people taking other games and hacking them around, taking elements of them, turning them into something new. I, considering My Life with Master is one of the original indie RPGs, or certainly one of the earlier examples, it hasn't really happened a lot with that. I think it's because there's all those abstract traits, such as fear and reason, self-loathing and weariness, that it's hard to do much with those. I think as a, yeah. as a game designer, you come to look at those. There's such a web of interconnection between all those things that's has been very thoroughly thought out it's kind of like well why would you want to play around with those and what do you do once you start playing around with those you know they're set up specific to this game i mean maybe you could sort of think of a totally different premise that wasn't my life the master yes. and use a bunch of abstract traits like those to facilitate that but 
And, and uh, certainly, yeah, you know, I've seen some games that have done that, or at least some hacks, mm. where you know they've changed the premise and they've perhaps changed the names of the stats, but mechanically the interactions between them remains the same. Because by the time you start playing around with the formulae, you risk really breaking the economy. The, uh, the yeah, and, the and, and rendering it completely unusable. And to what end, really? Yeah. But the thing that people have latched onto is changing the, the color. Yeah, the oh, setting God, yeah. of the game. So we have such things as, and you know, fill in your own blanks here. Really, my life with dot dot dot. So we have my life with Santa, my life with Jesus, <laughs> my life with Thatcher. <laughs> Bizarre one. My life with Tom Cruise. Well, that was the one I ran. I ran this oh, really? in the club some time back. Yeah, I, this was well several years ago, back when Tom Cruise was uh, divorcing or splitting up with, with Katie Holmes. I sort of pitched this as an idea that the minions in it would be uh, members of Tom Cruise's entourage or his, his PA or PR people, and that the master would be Tom Cruise, that the outsiders in it would be you know, David Miscavige and the other higher-ups in the Church of Scientology. Fundamentally, it was all about trying to find a new wife-slash-beard for Tom Cruise. <laughs> okay. Yeah. If I was going to run it today or tomorrow, it'd be my life with Trump. And of course, while we're talking about our personal experiences with this, there is one other little experience that I suppose yeah, Paul and I share. This is sort of before your time here. Ooh. There was almost a podcast before The Good Friends of Jackson Lies. The Good Friends of Jackson Lies was actually our second attempt at creating a podcast. Paul and I got together with our friend Robin many years ago, many, many years ago, to record the pilot of a podcast we began to call The Ludomancers. And the one episode we recorded was about My Life with Master. Yeah, it was about 30 minutes long. And um, I remember I edited it down and even put like intro and outro music on it and everything. All right. <laughs> I think I've still got it somewhere. Oh, God. <laughs> it must be terrible. <laughs> was it in the shed? Uh, no, no, I think it was in my living room. It was, yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. That's where you went wrong. Yeah. yeah. Not enough spiders. Yeah. We were going to do a different game each time, weren't we? But um, yeah. it was just so much work doing all the research and actually playing them that it never really took off. Yeah. Yes. But, yeah, maybe that's for the best, because if that had happened, we, we wouldn't be here today doing this. Aww. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. It is that time once again when we thank the generous people who have given us a really quite humbling amount of money now via Patreon. Uh, the, the, this money pays for uh, the ongoing costs of the, the podcast, our, our hosting, our bandwidth costs, uh, the, the new equipment we've been using for some time. And you know, none of this could happen without you. So thank you very much to each and every one of you. And we have some new people to thank. Well, hey. Yeah, so it's a big thanks to Forrest Aguirre. Yes, thank you very much, Forrest. Indeed, thanks, Forrest. And Sean Murphy has raised his, his backing from $1 to $3 now. So thank you very much and cheers, Sean. Hey, cheers, Sean. Cheers, Sean. 
another of our $1 pledges that's up their contribution to $3 is Aaron Eskenazi. So thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. Yes, thank you and cheers, Aaron. As regular listeners to the podcast will know, those souls who are generous enough and brave enough and foolhardy enough to back us at the $5 level get a very special tailored form of thanks. Oh boy, not again. Yep, we have, well actually we have a whole bunch of people to thank this way. And when I say thank this way, what I mean is that we sing to them. We that cre- really, you should say, stop using the word sing. It's not singing! <laughs> we make a bunch of very strange noises and Paul mixes them together with some sound effects and creates things. Things that live in your ears and your brain forever afterwards. And the first one today goes out to Soren Hager. And the next one goes out to Ted Blanchard. Ah, yes. My, my old friend Ted. Unless there's another Ted Blanchard out there. So, yeah, if it is you, Ted, I thank you very much. And, um, and if it isn't you, Ted, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah yes, yes. <laughs> but uh, if it's the Ted Blanchard I know, and I assume it is, uh, he is actually quite an accomplished musician and talented musician, which makes what we're about to do all the worse. He's <laughs> in safe company here, Scott. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We have a couple of additional five dollar backers we still have to thank, but we're trying to limit ourselves to two songs per episode just to avoid inflicting unnecessary sound loss. I was going to uh, say you can only regain so much in between in between recording sessions. So yeah, if you are still in the queue, apologies. We will sing to you next episode. Uh, and and I, I don't know. Maybe you're grateful for the respite. <laughs> And we'll soon be going to press with issue two of the Blasphemous Tome, the paper uh, published fanzine that we have. And that will be going out to backers in the middle of March. So we're making a cutoff point for backers to be the 10th of March, just before episode 100 launches. So if you are a backer by the 10th of March, you will receive at least a copy. If you're a $3 backer, you'll get a signed copy. And if you're a $5 backer, you'll get one of each. We've had really quite a lot of feedback on our last episode, uh, the episode on Dagon, uh, number 98. Uh, There's been a very active thread going on on our Google Plus community, but probably the most informative one has been some posts uh, on the actual actual episode post on BlasphemousTomes.com, where Brett Kramer wrote in and pointed out uh, some, some lost opportunities, I guess, things that we could have and, and should have really mentioned. Well, we, we should have if we'd known about them. Uh, but he, he gave some fantastic context. 
New Englanders, because of their Puritan roots, regarded Dagon as emblematic of paganism and Oriental-foreign paganism especially. Calling your church the esoteric order of Dagon was very clearly intended to flag it as other. Brett goes into yeah, a lot of detail in this post and a couple of subsequent posts, uh, talking about um, the use of Dagon as place names in New, uh, New England um, and, and what basically what Dagon meant to these people. And uh, yeah, I, it's, it's something that I was completely oblivious to and certainly adds a whole new dimension to the god, the shadow of Rinsmith and Lovecraft's yeah, use of Dagon. So yes, I, I really recommend going in and looking at those posts. In addition, he called us out on one thing. We we got our research wrong. Uh, shameful, I know. Um, we made the mistake in saying that Obed Marsh brought the Deep Ones back from the South Seas. <coughs> this is not the case. <laughs> fake, fake news. <laughs> <laughs> Very topical. <laughs> uh, so, yes, yeah, he, he did point out that... Um, what Obed Marsh brought back was the knowledge of how to contact the Deep Ones. And the Deep Ones that, that the people of Innsmouth interbred with were actually brought up from Johannathlae, which is just off the coast of Innsmouth. Local Deep Ones yeah. for local yeah. people. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Yeah. Locally sourced. Yes. <laughs> and organic, I would think. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But as I mentioned, there's, there's quite a long thread about that episode as well on the Google Plus community. And um, we had some really good ideas on there, from, you know, particularly from Tor Nielsen, Tim Vert and Adam Alexander, about uh, different ways of, you know, that, that Dagon and his relationship with Cthulhu and the Deep Ones could be interpreted. So if you're looking for more inspiration, yeah, dig into that thread. There's some gold in there, some Innsmouth gold. And Tor Nielsen uh, brought up the topic of the uh, satanic panic that we kind of associate most with the States. And he was asking, did it happen here in England and in the UK as well? Um, and certainly I recalled uh, talking to a friend from the, uh, from the Southwest uh, about how he had lent a friend a D&D book. And then the friend had come back kind of looking rather sheepish the next day and said, uh, that book, I can't give you back. My mum burnt it. <laughs> Yeah, so it did happen here, but yeah. it was kind of much more, a, uh, much more of a niche, kind of rarer thing. I think it, 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 it wasn't the the same uh, broad thing that it was in, in America. Yeah, I think on the whole, we're a much more secular society than the US. So that yeah, while there were pockets of that, it was much less of a mainstream thing. Yeah, uh, but yes, yes, as you say, that didn't mean that it didn't happen here. Uh, my my favourite post on there, though, actually came from Linus Larsen uh, from Sweden, who pointed out that the, yeah, it sort of did happen in a, a somewhat different form in Sweden, that apparently there was an infamous book, the name of which I'm not going to attempt to pronounce, uh, which sort of dealt in dealt with the uh the, the dangers of role-playing games but i again i think with with sweden being a much more secular society it wasn't really a religious panic that the moral panic there was much more of a political one and they were worried that games like cult in particular would somehow sway players into becoming um militant totalitarians and joining you know uh, sects devoted to strange political philosophies that does seem more of a genuine concern, <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> All just servants of Netzach in the end. 
But yeah, yeah, I mean, that just impressed the hell out of me. Um, so yeah, again, I recommend taking a look at that thread. I mean, lots of people posted experiences from around the world there. And if you're at all interested in this phenomenon, it's, it's interesting stuff. I also believe we had a shout out for players if they're in the Hong Kong area. Yes, yeah, Derek Boone there uh, was just asking whether there were any other Call of Cthulhu players in Hong Kong. If if you're in Hong Kong, if you play Call of Cthulhu or want to, then yeah, take a look at that thread uh, and and let him know. So you can find those discussion threads on our website, blasphemoustomes.com. You can find us on Google Plus under the name Good Friends of Jackson Elias. We're on Twitter as the Good Friends of JE, and we have a page on Facebook. Yes, and of course, we also have our forums on the Miskatonic University podcast website. So just to wrap up, what are our final thoughts about my life with Master? Yeah, what are your overall impressions of the game, particularly now that we've played it comparatively recently? I don't think it's a game for me. I really don't. The one thing I can see is that the shorter game was was fine because you didn't have so much of the constant grind of failing rolls and then getting that emotional investment and really hating the master. But that would push a button for me. Yeah, the, I, well, That would really hack me off. Well, I remember we, we talked about playing it some years back and you actually refused to at the time because you said, you know, if, if I wanted to have you know, someone abusing me for three hours, I'd just go to work. Yeah, that is actually, I'd, I'd still stand by that statement. <laughs> what about you, Scott? What are you, I mean, you've run it quite a few times, so you like it, right? Yeah, I do like it. I won't pretend it's a perfect game. As I've said before, I, I struggle with certain aspects of it. If it were a game that I were running or playing more often so that, you know, I didn't have to refresh my ageing memory about how the mechanics worked and then still screw up stuff, you know, as I was running it. You know, if it weren't for that, you know, the, the colour of it, the premise of it, you know, getting to, you know, let my more unpleasant personality aspects out in the form of the master and give them free reign. I mean, that, you know, that, that is an absolute joy to me. You obviously really love playing the master. I do. And I it's really great do. watching you play him. Because, um, yeah, you, you just come out with such great things. And the way you kind of address the players and, like, you, you kind of go to remember their name and then you're like, oh, no, it's not important what your name is. Just go and do this thing for me. And why did you mess up last time, you fool? Yeah, you, you just relish it. It's great. Oh, yes. And anything you say is always wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's like being in customer service all over again. But, yeah, I'd agree. It's, it's not a perfect game. I think it was a game changer at mm. the time. I think... I think it's one of those games that had quite an influence beyond, you know, its playership, really. Oh, absolutely. I don't think until I'd seen or played My Life with Master, I'd encountered a game that was so tightly focused mechanically upon its premise, where everything in the game, every mechanic, was about supporting that premise, about supporting a style of play, where there was no attempt to model physics or real-world actions. Well, more than uh, that, no attempt to reflect standard role-playing game. Yes. There's no combat mechanics, there's no dexterity, there's no intelligence, there's no hit points. Very, very limited number of mechanics, but very tailored to something quite different to the usual expectations of a role-playing game. 
And yeah, I mean, there have been plenty of games since then which have done exactly the mm. same thing. It's just that this was the first one I'd encountered. I, I won't pretend that it was the first one that actually did that. I mean, hell, I mean, if we want to go back in RPG history, the first game that probably, you know, completely focused on narrative and, you know, threw out any attempts to model, you know, real world actions and threw out the wargaming routes was probably actually the Dallas role playing game. <laughs> Yeah, oh, really? which, which does exist, which is is a weird, weird fucking game. It took me a little while to process what you, yeah. the words you it, just said it, there. It, it is a licensed role-playing game from the Dallas uh, you know, soap opera. I'll have to take a look at that I, I, I have a copy oh, of it. Oh, right, okay. And yeah, it, yeah it, it, it is really weird. I certainly, I, yeah, I, I didn't encounter that until fairly recently. And until my life with Master and, uh, you know, to some extent, uh, Inspectors, I'd grown up with this whole idea of role-playing games or, you know, role-playing game character sheets in particular are all about modelling the physical and intellectual attributes of the characters and their skills and what they can do. And that resolution mechanics in games are all about, you know, physical struggles or emotional struggles or psychological struggles, but mostly physical ones. And, yeah, th this threw all that out. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting one to go back and look at. I can buy into that premise and the limitations therein. And, yeah, I mean, I'm quite happy to play it. Um, I don't know how I'd get on running it, but, yeah, I, I enjoy it a lot. I, I do recommend running it, you know, just as... I mean, just as an exercise in, you know, a very different approach to GMing. Yeah. Letting out your inner bastard. And that too, yes. I mean, you know, dear God, is it cathartic to play that as, you know, as the GM, as the master. Yeah, yeah the Scott glee on your face yeah, was Scott's, terrifying. <laughs> Scott's getting very animated <laughs> when he said that. A little glow in his eyes. Anyway, we had better wrap this episode up, worms. <laughs> yes, master. <laughs> why, why are we still talking? Why are you still talking? You, you, you should be going off. And uh, I, 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 I've given you instructions. Uh, why, why are you just standing there? Why, why are you standing there, Sanderson? You know, it is Sanderson. No, no. It's, anyway, it's not important. Just, look, just go. Yes, sir. But, but I have to say goodbye, master. <sighs> There'll be time for that later. Goodbye, master. <laughs> Bye. <sighs> goodbye. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com mm -hmm.